Hi, uh, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and welcome to the October 2011 Radiology podcast. Uh, this month we will be discussing two interesting articles. First, Dr. David Kalmas, deputy editor for Neuroradiology, will speak with doctors Richard Briggs and Robert Haley of the Department of Radiology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas on their study uh, using ASL perfusion imaging and physostigmine challenges to investigate hippocampal dysfunction in Gulf War veterans. This is a really uh, fascinating study involving a 11-year follow-up ASL perfusion compared to a series that was done earlier. Next, Dr. Alex Banquier, a deputy editor for thoracic imaging, will speak with uh, Drs. Han and Lynch on a study from the Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Gene Study uh, investigating radiologic phenotypes associated with COPD exacerbations. We are all quite interested in the COPD gene study and uh, look forward to an interesting discussion on radiologic phenotypes. Hello, my name is David Kalmus. I am Deputy Editor for Neuroradiology. Today I'm joined by Professor Richard Briggs, Professor of Radiology and Internal Medicine at University of Texas Southwestern, and his colleague, Robert W. Haley, Professor of Internal Medicine and Epidemiology at the same institution. We are here today to discuss their paper, Investigation of Hippocampal Dysfunction in Gulf War Veterans with Arterial Spin Labeling Perfusion Imaging Using Physostigmine Challenges. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello. Well, first, if, if one of you could just give us a brief synopsis of the major findings of your study. So in our study, we compared a group of uh, Gulf War veterans, each with one of the three syndromes that had come out of that war, uh, and a control group. And we found that the syndrome groups differed from the control group and from each other on a cholinergic challenge study, where we infused saline in a first session and thiazostigmine in a second session. And after each session, uh, we measured regional cerebral blood flow with arterial spin labeling, MR. And we found that in the control group, we had a normal response to the cholinergic challenge of a reduction in regional cerebral blood flow in the hippocampus uh, bilaterally. Whereas in the uh, syndromes two and three groups, uh, we had a paradoxical increase in cerebral blood flow, which was very abnormal. The syndrome one group uh, actually was more like the control group. So we, we got a difference among the syndrome groups and a very strong difference from the control group. Uh, this indicates there is an objective difference in cerebral blood flow in response to a cholinergic challenge uh, in ill Gulf War veterans. Were, now, were these very different findings among these syndromes a, a surprise to you or were they expected? Well, they were not a surprise this time because we did the same study about 11 years ago and got the same result, although it was not as extensive 11 years ago. 
But then we uh, developed the new ASL techniques to do this same experiment with, without spec, with, without uh, radiation exposure and in a much briefer period of time, uh, and repeated it after we developed all that 11 years later and got the same result, except we found that there had been a substantial uh, extension of the degree of illness in the same veteran studied 11 years apart. But I, my reading of the paper, there was no morphologic change, no signal change on standard imaging, but there was a worsening of the, the challenge test. Is that true? That, that's correct, yes. Uh, there were no morphologic changes, uh, nothing you could see on MR images, but uh, in fact, nothing you can see on uh, fairly subtle studies, but uh, with a cholinergic challenge, we got a very big difference, suggesting that there was an, there's an, abnorm an acquired abnormality in cholinergic receptors in the hippocampus. Acquired and progressive. Correct. Now, do you anticipate that this test will become part of diagnostic criteria for, for making the diagnosis of, of one or another Gulf War syndromes? Richard? Well, that, that is our hope, at least. I mean, we were, uh, we were surprised, I think, or Dr. Haley was, in that first SPEC study 11 years ago to find uh, such differences, not only between the ill veterans and normal healthy control veterans, but among the three major syndrome groups. Uh, and they did a discriminant analysis test and found that it was a very powerful method for discriminating even the different syndromes one from another. So we, we think or hope that because we've now switched techniques from the SPEC study, which used radioactivity and which required a, a two-day interval between the saline uh, or placebo test and the physostigmine challenge, uh, that we now have a quick test that can be done in, in a single day session of about uh, two to three hours testing time. I might add to that, one, another important feature of this is these three syndrome groups have been somewhat controversial, but this cholinergic challenge with ASL test shows very dramatically that the, the direction of the response to this test it differs from the control group in different directions in these three syndrome groups. And so if you don't distinguish the three groups, what you get is they all average together and you get no difference from the control group. So we, we think this new test is very doubly important because it discriminates the ill from the controls by dis distinguishing these three syndromes which act differently from the control group. Sure. Now, is, is the ASL technique you're using, shall we say, plug and play? I know that some ASL techniques are difficult to administer and prone to artifact potentially, how straightforward is, is the one you have applied? It's a modification of uh, the standard ones. Uh, we still are, in fact, uh, working on further improving it because we think we can do even better. For example, this technique is not an axial imaging technique as almost all literature reports are of ASL, but we used an oblique coronal, and the reason we did that was just the same reason as in standard imaging of the hippocampus, because that is, gives you better anatomic definition because of, of the cylindrical shape of, of the hippocampus. So that, we think, was key in giving a spatial resolution to be able to better define these blood flow changes. Sure. And I noticed there were relatively few exclusions from the study in terms of 
not being able to carry out the, the MR protocol. So um, could you explain a little bit the, the relationship between the Gulf War illness and classical post-traumatic stress disorder and how you looked at that in the current study, if at all? Well, of course, any group of people who's been in a war situation, there's the question of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and the symptoms of PTSD are subjective, uh, varied, and with some overlap with the Gulf War illness symptoms. However, careful clinical evaluation of Gulf War veterans shows a, a spectrum that is, although slightly overlapping, is somewhat different. So it, it appears clinically they're very different, but this has been a major source of controversy through the years, whether it's PTSD or something different. And, and I think the, the availability now of objective tests that show differences in brain function or response to challenge by imaging are going to be very important in settling this controversy, whether this is post-traumatic stress disorder or uh, a neurotoxic condition. Uh, and I would think this particular study is going to be very important in making that distinction. And can you share with, with us what you're doing now? I noticed that you increased your, uh, from 34 initial uh, members of the cohort from 1998 with 23 new ones now. Is your cohort continuing to expand? And are there more, more recent veterans with other uh, disabilities that, that you're studying as well? Yes, we designed this as a series of uh, cohort extensions. We first brought back the same veterans we studied uh, 11 years ago that, that were selected randomly from a, a battalion that we had studied, a larger group of uh, that we studied epidemiologically. This time, in order to increase that sample size, we selected more members of that same battalion to augment to get larger numbers. But separate from that, or in addition to that, We've now done a large national survey of 8,000 randomly selected Gulf War veterans in which we've developed the syndrome definitions and uh, have selected a, a whole new uh, group to study of 90 veterans, so a much larger sample size, and those have all come in for all of these same tests. And we'll and be publishing that later this year. These tests were all done at your facility. There Are there other facilities that are uh, working with you in collaboration to try to expand the cohort further? Yes, uh, we're actively working with uh, six other universities, uh, University of Texas at Dallas, uh, Emory University, uh, University of Florida at Gainesville, Johns Hopkins Imaging Center, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas, and all of these are collaborating, doing different tests, and, uh, and the University of Florida group has, has developed uh, another cohort of uh, veterans being studied. So all this is done collaboratively. Uh, UT, uh, University of Texas at Arlington is also included in those uh, institutions. It seems unfortunate there, there's, there are probably many, many patients who need to be imaged and, and, and evaluated with, with your techniques. Yeah, I think the, that's a very good point. The question is, all of this so far has been in a research mode, but I think this particular paper is important because, as Dr. Briggs pointed out, uh, he and his, his colleagues have developed this new ASL technique, which looks to be uh, exportable as a, a practically feasible diagnostic test. In other words, this cholinergic challenge with SPECT took four days, two afternoons, 48 hours apart, uh, and, and a whole afternoon, each of the two afternoons, and that was just not feasible clinically. 
But now with ASL, you don't have to wait 48 hours, and the protocol has been much streamlined that really in one three-hour session, you can do the whole protocol with a, a saline challenge, ASL, a, a cholinergic challenge, and ASL, and then the analysis is now pretty much packaged. So this could become a diagnostic test in a practical vein in the future, and, and that might then be uh, performed at um, many VA medical centers where they see these Gulf War veterans. It could be mass-produced and uh, delivered to the whole population of sick veterans, we hope. Yeah. Okay, well, um, this, is, this has been extremely, extremely valuable. Is there anything that either of you would like to add that, we, that you feel is important and we haven't had a chance to touch on? Well, I think the bottom line here is that after 20 years of controversy, there are now a series of objective tests coming out that demonstrate that the Gulf War illness is not caused by stress. It's not a post-traumatic stress disorder by any means. It appears to be epidemiologically and clinically a brain cell injury, possibly involving cholinergic receptors, that produces a real brain disease in these veterans, probably caused by chemical exposures to organophosphate, nerve agent, low-level nerve gas exposure, perhaps compounded by pesticide exposure and the mestinon uh, medications given to the soldiers. So it's we're. we're in 20 years, we hope we're going to be pretty soon in a position to serve these veterans and, and help them and perhaps make them better. Sure. I guess just having an explanation is comforting to them, even if it can't be, can't be fixed at this time. So, Yeah, many of these people say, look, I don't want compensation. I'd like to get well and get back to work, and we sure. would like to do that. Sure. But better understanding is often uh, key to being able to figure out more appropriate uh, therapies also. So we hope that uh, a lot of uh, people will be reading this article from the medical field who will be starting to think about just that. Absolutely. Having an objective test for patient selection and response to therapy is, is going to be key in, in moving forward. This well, will also be important in clinical trials, too. Absolutely, Better yeah. As, as an objective endpoint. Um, I want to I uh, genuinely thank both of you, uh, not only for today's podcast, but for your support of our journal. And uh, I look forward uh, to reading future work from your group in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, we'll see you. Hello, my name is Alex Bankier, and I am Deputy Editor for Thoracic Imaging. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Mailan Han, from the University of Michigan, and Dr. David Lynch from National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. In our recent radiology issue, their article, Radiologic Phenotypes Associated with COPD Exacerbations in the COPD Gene Study, was printed, and we welcome both authors to today's podcast. Dr. Lynch, before going into the core of your article, can you briefly tell us uh, a little about the COPD gene project in general, which is indeed, I believe, a quite unique study design and study project? Yes, thank you, Alex. The COPD gene study uh, was designed to identify genetic factors associated with COPD. And one of the things that uh, was very far-seeing among the uh, principal investigators of this study was that they recognized that there are several morphologic subtypes contained within the entity of COPD 
and that CT is clearly the best available modality for potentially distinguishing among those important subtypes. So 10,000 patients have been recruited into this study, uh, and we are with volumetric inspiratory and expiratory CT scans, and we are currently analyzing the data and trying to evaluate severity of emphysema, severity of gas trapping, and severity of airways disease. I see. Uh, Dr. Hahn, your study was uh, focused on the COPD exacerbations. Uh, could you briefly explain to our readers in what these exacerbations clinically consist and more importantly, why they are so dangerous? That's a great question, and I think investigators for a long time have struggled with the best definition, but essentially a COPD exacerbation is a flare-up of a patient's breathing trouble where they experience increase in shortness of breath, cough, and sputum production. The reason why they're important is we're beginning to understand they make up a unique cohort of patients who have uh, impaired quality of life, more rapid decline in lung function, higher mortality. Uh, this group of patients is also probably responsible for a good portion of the healthcare costs associated with COPD care. I see. Can you uh, summarize for our readers in just a few sentences what the methods of your study were and what the main findings were? Essentially, what we did was to look at CT scans for the first 1,000 patients or so who in COPD gene had had their CT scan, their quantitative CT scans analyzed. And we looked at quantitative CT metrics and related those to the frequency of exacerbations. And what we found was that both emphysema and also a measure of airway disease, we specifically looked at uh, wall thickness, both of these were uh, important factors in predicting uh, exacerbation frequency. The other thing that we did was to break the patients down into emphysema predominant and airway predominant, uh, airway disease predominant patients. And it does look like that these are, you can separate these into two uh, separate cohorts. And the interesting thing is that these two groups of patients are actually quite uh, different if you look at things like lung function and uh, symptoms and, and comorbidities. What I uh, think is so exciting about this study is that it uh, it demonstrates that we can use quantitative uh, CT uh, to help uh, define COPD patient subgroups. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lynch, these subgroups obviously kind of very strongly allude to uh, the different phenotypes that are currently described for or described in COPD. Uh, this word phenotype is around a lot in the field of COPD. What exactly uh, are these phenotypes and how will knowledge about these phenotypes potentially impact on the clinical management of COPD patients? I think that's a really good question, Alex. And, and in fact, the word, word phenotype is often very loosely used. What we mean by phenotype in this study is is a cluster of unique characteristics that seems to define a separate population within the overall umbrella of COPD, uh, which is defined simply on the basis of airway obstruction. Uh, and the importance of identifying these phenotypes uh, is, for the purposes of the study, it's quite likely that these 
different distinct patient populations will have different underlying genetic causes for their COPD. And secondly, very likely also, the treatment strategies will be different in the different uh, phenotypes. Do we have at this time point uh, some information about uh, in what exactly these treatment strategies will differ? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. We're just on the cusp, I think, of being able to better design these patient subgroups. We've known, for instance, for a long time that we have pink puffers and blue bloaters, and a physician can identify that in clinic. But it's difficult to put a number on that patient. And, and how do you, for instance, define a patient like that if you want to enroll them in a clinical trial? The uh, medications and therapies we've had for COPD have been essentially inhalers for quite some time. Uh, only within the last year has a uh, new therapy, reflumalast, been developed that only works in patients with frequent exacerbations and sputum production. While I don't know for certain, it, it very well may be that this uh, would relate to the uh, patients that we identified in our study as the airway disease phenotype. So. I think the importance of what we found here is that it is a starting place for future investigation so that we can define these subgroups in the future and then develop targeted therapies. I see. Uh, a question for both of you, Dr. Hahn and Dr. Lynch. Obviously, um, study design like the ones you described with 10,000 patients and so forth are necessarily restricted to academic centers. Uh, on the other hand, COPD is so frequent that many non-academic or non-subspecialized radiologists uh, may see these patients in their practice. Uh, is there in your study a kind of a piece of information, an element of information, some practical take-home message for these general radiologists? Well, I can maybe uh, start and see what Milan has to say. I, I would say that you know, our study is clearly driven by quantitative CT metrics, and most of the you know, practices in the country do not currently use quantitative CT. Assuming that that is true, I think it is still worthwhile in our radiologic reporting to record the presence of bronchial wall thickening when we think that that's the predominant feature of COPD and record the presence, character, and extent of emphysema because I think these findings, even if not quantified, may be uh, important in um, selection of, of uh, patient management. I see. Dr. Hahn? No, I, I completely agree with uh, David. I think that for a long time, we as physicians may or may not have noted these differences, but I think it's very helpful to have radiologists point this out because I think as we move forward, we need the clinicians to partner with the researchers to help us understand what the different clinical subgroups of patients are out there so that we can define these groups for future clinical trials and, and refine the therapies that we have for these patients moving forward. So I think it's going to be sort of a, a group effort, and I think it's physicians start paying attention to this, um, my hope is that the uh, general knowledge on the subject will, will increase and we can further our understanding of these COPD patient subgroups. At the end of our conversation, I would like to return to the broader context of the COPD uh, gene project. 
Um, how, according to your subjective prediction, will the imaging of COPD patients be performed in the near future? And how will the COPD gene project have contributed to this future way of imaging patients with COPD? For example, uh, will quantitative airway analysis, quantitative CT, uh, emphysema assessment, will this be, become standard element of the way we image these patients in the future? Yeah, I, th I personally think that the demand for quantitative CT will be led by pulmonary physicians as this type of information infiltrates into the clinical community. And in particular, if it can be shown that it, if it drives treatment. The other interesting facet of this whole research is that, of course, the other major revolution in thoracic CT is the issue of lung cancer screening. And of course, those populations will overlap heavily. So, you know, we might predict in a couple of years that people who come for screening uh, for lung cancer uh, for CT will also receive quantitative imaging as a component of their evaluation and that those numbers will be valuable to uh, referring clinicians. Dr. Hahn? Yes, I think that's an important point. In as much as CT scans and, uh, for instance, quantification of the airways allows us to either prognosticate or make specific treatment choices and provides us information that's unique that we can't get elsewhere, then it's going to become standard of care. And I think that the study we have here is just sort of the cusp. It's a sort of first sign that we do have information, quantitative information on the CT that can provide unique prognostic uh, information. So I think as this accumulates, and in particular, if there are any studies that demonstrate that this helps define specific treatments, uh, then we will be moving towards this type of imaging as being standard of care for, for COPD. Well, I believe that's really a, a fascinating perspective uh, based on this study radiological phenotypes associated with COPD exacerbations in the COPD gene study in our recent radiology issue. Dr. Hahn, Dr. Lynch, thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.